I've always sort of had those two things going on. I feel balanced by sort of having like an, an, a more academic or cerebral pursuit and then the dancing as well. So you have to access physicality, but also when we're performing or trying to portray an emotion, you have to have that intelligence as well. So I, it makes me feel like I'm exercising all of the ways in which a person can. Hey, what's up? This is Culture Hustlers, where we talk with artists, designers, performers, writers, and other entrepreneurs about how they hustle. My doggy keeps putting her nose on my elbow. All right. Take four. Hey, what's up? This is Culture Hustlers, where we talk with artists, designers, performers, writers, and other entrepreneurs about how they hustle their living by selling culture. I'm your host, Lucas Spivey. I'm a BFA-MBA hybrid. That's uh, that's an interesting combo. It's like those... Uh, it's like those snacks called combos. Do you remember remember them? Remember pizza flavored combos? You got the uh, delicious pretzel outside, and then inside you've got this disgusting slurry of the worst excuse for pizza flavor ever. Actually, sorry, this was a pretty morbid description of what an artist business combo is. But basically, I'm saying both things go really well with beer, and. I just love to talk about art and business, and I'm talking to you from inside the mobile incubator. It's a rolling recording studio inside a vintage camper trailer that travels across the U.S. It's pretty cool, it's pretty beautiful, and it's towed by a 1973 ambulance, because why not? Anyway, today it's parked at Locust Projects in Miami, Florida, for an interview with Alan Jins, a ballerina, and a former intellectual property attorney, and now the director of Legal Link here in Miami. So, I've got a confession to make. I broke the law in art school, well, actually, a few times. For my senior thesis, I'm pretty sure I wrecked the Fourth Amendment. I had, here's here's how I did. I, I had a pretty basic address back then, something like 1234th Street or something like that. And I got a lot of fake mail and promo offers, and so I just started collecting it. And then I started getting previous tenants' mail delivered to me, so I don't know, I just started collecting that. And by the end of the year, I had a huge box of mail from people, lots of people who were not me. Uh, names like Shakira Harganese and Brian Pant. I have no idea if they're real people or not. So for my senior thesis, I installed a dozen mailboxes in the gallery and I stuffed them with the mail. And then I put out a pedestal with letter openers on it. And during the reception, everyone just opened all the mail. And there were there were Christmas photos, there was offers from Walgreens, a couple hospital bills, some W-2s and tech stuff, and even a personal check. Uh, yeah, I, so I mailed th- that stuff back to the senders, but, you know, geez, Lucas, you can, you can get into trouble. A lot of artists do stupid stuff like me and they'll reach out to folks like Alan at Legal Link after they're in trouble, but totally feel free to, you know, like hear her story and maybe reach out to some legal help before you do something stupid. So my name is Alan Gins Ayers, and I live in Miami, Florida. I am the Legal Link Director of the Legal Link Program at Locust Projects, and I'm also a dancer at Dance Now Miami. I grew up in Sacramento, California. I went to elementary, middle, and high school there. Some people don't really know where Sacramento is, but it's um, sort of in Northern California between 
San Francisco and Lake Tahoe. So right in the middle of the state. It was nice. It's it's pretty quiet. There wasn't a whole lot of things to do. But as a result of that, I was very active in activities. I was always a really good student. Um, and then I also I grew up taking ballet classes. So I was I started when I was three. So that was a huge part of my childhood. I've been dancing since before I can remember. It's just sort of always been a part of my life and something that I've loved to do. I started getting really serious about it when I was maybe 10 or 11. And I started taking dance classes pretty much every day until by the time I was in high school, I was in ballet class for three hours a day, six days a week. So it became a a huge part of of my life at that point. And... What were what else were you up to, you know, as a as a kid or a teen? All of the clubs in high school, AP Economics Club. I was the co-president of that. I was I was involved in student leadership. I did after school theater. I did the spring musicals every year at my high school. I was in the moot court club. Okay, so you sound very busy in high school because you are you're clubbing, and you're also doing eighteen hours a week in ballet. And on top of that, you're traveling with your, your your moot court. So what's going through your mind then the summer between junior and senior year? I really wanted to go to school on the East Coast. Um, I'm not quite sure where I got that idea. I think after my freshman year of high school, uh, my mom took me to New York. And once I set foot in New York City I I felt like I had to live there at some point in my life I think it was just like the energy um so Sacramento is is sort of a a quiet slower town it's the capital but it's a lot of government workers there's culture but there's not something happening everywhere all the time I went to go see a lot of shows with my mom when I was there we went to a lot of museums and it just the scale and the amount of people there and the degree of of culture and things going on just really appealed to me. So then when I started looking at colleges, I got in the mail a postcard from a small liberal arts college for women called Barnard. They're a sister school of Columbia University. Um, And on the postcard, there was a a photo of their uh, students in the ballet studio. And so I was like, oh, it's a <laughs> it's a college. It's in New York City. They have a ballet program. Let me look into this. And the more that I, I looked into Barnard, the, the more I, I felt like it would be the right place for me. I ended up applying early decision. And so I got in and that was sort of that. How soon after coming in did you decide to study economics? So I initially thought I would maybe study... English or political science based on the things that I liked when I was in high school. But my um, my favorite class my senior year was AP Economics, hence why I was president of the club, right? <laughs> so what's an example of a class you took or a project you had to do? So um, one class I took was Economic History of the United States, which is sort of a history of, of money markets and how the U.S. economy is structured. And you were taking ballet? Yes, I was a dance major. You were a dance major? No, I'm sorry, a dance minor. So economics history major and a dance minor. So I wasn't necessarily looking for a 
BFA program in college, even though I wanted to continue dancing. What I want to know is you're writing an economics paper mm -hmm. and you also have a rehearsal coming up. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's going through your mind? So, I mean, I've always sort of had those two things going on. I feel balanced by sort of having like an, an, a more academic or cerebral pursuit and then the dancing as well. And so you have to access physicality, but also um, when we're performing or trying to portray an emotion, you have to have sort of that intelligence as well. So I, it makes me feel like I'm exercising all of the ways in which a person can can you imagine your life without one of those things well so when i went to law school i you know everyone tells you law school's very important very serious and you can't do anything else you have to only be a law student so i listened to them um and i stopped dancing for about a year i wasn't at that point this is in 2009 so I, I I sort of got to the end of my college career, had to make a decision about whether I was going to keep dancing and try to pursue that professionally. And I, I sort of felt like, like, no, this is this is where it got me and dance will always be a part of my life. But I, I don't, you know, want to go to auditions. I don't want to try to get into a company. I have you know, I'm going to have a, a B.A. from Barnard. I am interested in going to law school. The economy is really bad right now, so I think what that's what I'm going to do. This is, this is 2009. Yep. 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 So, um, so I applied to law school. I got into Georgetown, and when I started there, you know, I stopped dancing, and it felt not complete. I didn't, I didn't feel. It, it felt like something was missing in my life. And then, so my second year, I started dancing again. My third year, my last year in law school, I was just taking class at a local studio in the D.C. area, and there was a woman who was in the class as well who had just started a dance company, so she invited me to join her company in its first year. It's felt right in finding the ways to balance that. Once I realized it was something that I could do and something that I wanted to do, it's something that I've made a point of including both things in my life. So w why don't you explode out, you know, what it is that, and, and let's start really broad, okay. you know, as far as like, what is the legal industry? So the judiciary is um, a branch of government that's supposed to interpret and apply laws to situations. Part of what a lawyer can do is represent clients in litigation. Not all lawyers are litigators. But um, litigation is, is basically going to court. So if somebody needs, like you mentioned, um, a divorce or a landlord-tenant issue or a copyright infringement case, which is what I see a lot in, in what I do, then they would hire a lawyer who would re represent them in court before a judge saying that this person has wronged me in some way or I haven't wronged this other person and um, the lawyer would help their client present their side. Do most lawyers specialize in defending or prosecuting or can they can they do both? 
it's usually one or the other. So the government is the prosecutor and then the people who represent people who have been accused of crimes are defense lawyers. And I think in the civil space, it's a, it's more more of both. So in for example, in one lawsuit, you could have somebody suing one party and then that party comes around and sues back. So then each side mm. is both a plaintiff and a defendant. At what point do you as a law student have that have to start making some decisions like I'm going to really focus on this particular type of case or this particular position? I don't think you have to really decide until you graduate and start trying to find a job. A lot of law students will have a summer job that will turn into their their job when they graduate and that's what happened with me I when after my my second year of law school my 2L year I was a law clerk with a firm with a law firm in New York that specialized mainly in intellectual property litigation and I felt that with my background as a dancer and caring about art and cultural production that this was a good fit for me so intellectual property is the type of law that protects what somebody creates and it covers copyrights, trademarks, patents, so inventions, brands, and they call it works of authorship, so books. Performances, recordings, artwork. But that firm did a lot of work with with music copyright and design patents for for jewelry. So these are things that um, appealed to me and made me want to you know, use my legal career to protect the things that people make. So a design for a bracelet that was very popular that would get imitated a lot. And I and our our firm, what we did was we sort of tracked when, when it was getting imitated and, and really worked to protect the brand and the design that was unique to our client. And going to that client's um, workshop and seeing, you know, speaking with her and hearing the history of of how she came up with this and all of the philosophy be- behind her design made me feel like what we were doing to protect it, we were doing something important. A client who was a was a composer and their work was consistently being used without their permission. So we would bring copyright suits in order to enforce their rights um, to the music that they created. And so when people would use their work without permission, say in a YouTube video or on television, we would bring a lawsuit in order to get their royalties that they deserved for creating something. And YouTube now has, if you're using something that's not yours, then you they get to put an ad in front of your video. And I think the revenue from the ad goes to the copyright owner or something. I think we had a case one time about a, a wedding videographer who used our client's music and they just don't realize that there somebody owns them and mm-hmm. you can't just use that for your own product. You have a background in the arts and in law and economics history and you are now in New York and you're working on cases about intellectual property. You're thinking about things that most people are not going to think about. Somehow copyrights were not included in Aristotle and Plato. It can be very formal, putting form over something that's not, doesn't have a form. For example, in 
one one requirement in the United States to get a copyright is that something be so the the wording is that in order to get a copyright it has to be fixed in a tangible means of expression it's called the fixation requirement so there has to be a, a thing there has to be a there there but for something like music or dance if it's not recorded it can be created and it can live in someone's memory you can create a melody not write it down anywhere play it on the piano remember what you played and it exists in the world even if it's not embodied anywhere same thing with the dance when we create work sometimes most of the time we'll video it at the end of the day but sometimes we don't so it only lives in our memories for a, a period of time and United States copyright law says because there hasn't been a fixation it hasn't been fixed in any there's no video there's no notation it's not written down anywhere there's not a thing that you can show that proves this was created mm -hmm. then it's it's not eligible for copyright we could very easily say there's certain artists who are like this is my thing we don't take photographs of it like mm -hmm. it, it it's an experience that you have to come to i don't mm -hmm. document it oops because <laughs> yeah <laughs> if someone yeah. comes to see it and they copy it mm -hmm. where's the evidence that they didn't invent it yeah so for that person in order to to have that fixation that's needed under copyright law they could video performance of it that's not you know a public so they have what's needed for copyright protection but they're not compromising what they want the public experience of their work to be is that what most people's path would be? So my last year of law school, I'd actually met the person who's, who I'm now married to, and, and he's from Florida. So he was working down here in Miami, and we um, had a long-distance relationship for a year. And after a year of, of flying back and forth between New York and Miami, I, I just decided to move down here. So I moved to Miami about four years ago, and I was interviewing with law firms here, doing some freelance legal work on the side and taking dance classes. And I was asked to join the company that I'm now in my fifth season with, Dance Now Miami. When I graduated in college in 2009, I wasn't necessarily looking to dance professionally for, for a lot of reasons. I didn't, I thought that maybe I wasn't good enough. It was something that I wasn't interested in auditioning for. If I didn't think that I could make a living you know I'm 4'11 that's pretty short for a dancer it's if it's a corps de ballet where everyone's supposed to look the same you just might not get chosen because you're not you don't look the same on stage you're you're a good good deal shorter than most of the other people but I was here taking class and I was asked by this company that I'm with now which has dancers of of all heights so that's something that's really nice about our company dance is very demanding especially classical ballet um you have to have you know, perfect turnout, perfect extensions. So, and there's sort of a time limit on how long you can dance for because of that, because, you know, as the body gets older, it's, it's a little bit more vulnerable to these types of injuries. So I'm here and somebody's offering to pay me to dance professionally, which is something that I didn't expect to happen. But while I can physically do it, I felt like I should, like I had to. So I joined that company and, and sort of through them, I heard about this program that had existed in Miami for a long time called the Legal Link Program, which provides legal services to artists. So I, I offered, you know, my resume to 
the organization that was running that program at the time, and they just happened to be looking for somebody who was a lawyer to come in and run the program. I joined as the legal link director. I've I'm now been in that position for about three and a half years. Yeah, eventually I, I came to Miami and found a way to both dance professionally and work as an attorney in a way that provides legal services to artists. I mean, sometimes life just works out, and but, you know, you have to be the right person for that opportunity, and I was fortunate to have the right background for what they were looking for. So do you feel that you were really helpful in the position that you're in? Artists will contact us when they have issues, and a lot of times, you know, we'll, we'll get people who are, who are really stressed out. They're, this is not something that they plan to encounter in their work as an artist. And suddenly, you know, there's somebody threatening to sue them or their work's been stolen. They see, you know, their work out in the world and they haven't authorized it. So they're really upset about this and, and they come to our organization and we can either, we either help them in-house or we also have a referral network of volunteer attorneys who will take cases on, on behalf of these clients, either for um, pro bono, so for free, or um, in some instances, they'll, they'll work out you know, a reduced rate or something that the artist can afford. But yeah, I think that it's, it's an important service. And there's actually been some interesting cases in the Miami area, that, like um, the artist, uh, is it like... It's like a-hole sniffs. A-hole sniffs glue, yeah. yeah. I'd like to yeah. talk about that. That was a very interesting case. So he had a mural in the Wynwood Arts District, and um, a clothing company, American Eagle, I think, came in and did a photo shoot in front of his mural. And then American Eagle used the photos in front of his mural and as part of a worldwide campaign. I mean, it was it was incredible, the scale of, of what they were doing. They um, they opened a store in Colombia and had people recreate. Yeah, they had, lo- I believe they had local artists replicate his mm-hmm. work as part of their campaign. It was in all of their stores. And, I, I, you know, in Tokyo, I think there was like giant blow-ups in front of, of stores there. But um, so... so he brought a lawsuit and he said, you know, they can't use his work for commercial purposes. And I believe it settled pretty quickly. So what were the the concepts or legal issues involved in that case? So that was a copyright case. So he has a copyright in his mural. And there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, murals as intellectual property. They're saying, well, it's on the street. Everyone can see it all the time. Shouldn't it be free for people to use? But, you know, no. So public space and public domain aren't the same thing. And people think that, you know, when we, when we talk about intellectual property or copyright and we see that something's in the public domain, that means it's, it's not under copyright. It's free for, for use. But that's, that's not the same as something being in a public space. And I think it's it's confusing because of the word. These terms can get confusing, but just because something can be seen on the street doesn't mean that it's free for everyone to use. So what's the difference between a selfie in front of a mural and you know, a clothing campaign? The selfie, you're technically reproducing somebody else's copyright, but it's probably a fair use. 
people have to be careful about what they're using for commercial purposes. If they're not a major clothing brand and they're not engaging in a worldwide campaign, then maybe they'll get lucky and somebody won't notice or won't care as much and they're not going to, you know, find themselves in court. But, you know, people own the work that they put out into the world and when you use somebody else's work for your own purposes without permission and without authorization or or paying a license fee, then you open yourself up to the potential of litigation. Artists are real people. They Mm -hmm. actually, they will sit down one day and decide whether they're going to pursue an issue or not. When we represented, when the firm I worked for represented the jewelry company, that's a lot of the ways that we found out about people co-opting the design that was under a patent is somebody's the friend of the designer would see a a bracelet in a store that looked just like hers and would take a picture and send it to us and um you know that could be the same thing here somebody the artist's friend could be scrolling instagram and seeing somebody selling you know like you said their jewelry or their fashion and in front of their friend's mural and might send that over to their friend and they might contact us and <laughs> so i want to show you an example of an intellectual property case well not a case actually i don't think it's gone i don't know where it is right now but here's two different handbags this first one is by alice saunders her company is forest bound and the second one is um forever 21 which they released shortly after and i'll read you what what alice said this isn't a article online. She said, I worked with a brilliant graphic designer, Mason McPhee, for weeks on creating a custom font for Escape that was based on the letters from old newspapers from the 1950s and 60s. I started receiving messages from people on Instagram saying, hey, I purchased the Escape bag at Forever 21 and I want to buy more of them directly from you. Is that possible? She -hmm. found out from her friends who were buying her yeah. product at Forever 21. So it was obviously misconstrued. It's a little tough with fashion, right? So copyright for sure applies to things like visual art and music, but it's a little bit trickier with fashion. And I'm not, you know, super versed in, in the issues that come up there. It's tough. There's some interesting cases about trademark in the fashion world and false designation of origin which this case could very well be somebody sees something and they think it's from you but it's from somebody else but if if the public if these things are so much a part of this designer's work that it's become a recognizable feature in the market where consumers will say oh all of these things together this must be Hmm. this designer then when another company or another person takes those elements into their own work, then it might, you know, run afoul of the laws governing trademarks. You can go to the government's website on it, and they will give you basically it's like a it's like a three or five part litmus test on whether something is eligible for a trademark because it has to pass certain tests correct yeah there has to be some market recognition so it can be a little bit tricky when you're talking about things that aren't you know what we typically think of trademarks is is a logo but 
you know, things that aren't a brand name or a logo can be trademarked. Although we are recommending that everyone go check out Legal Link. Legal Link at Logos Projects. If yeah. you're an artist in Florida um, who finds yourself with a legal question or in a legal situation that you, you're not quite sure how to proceed, definitely come check us out. Here's the scenario. We have we have a choreographer. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Alexandra, and she sometimes uses original music in her choreography. It's sometimes copyrighted. It depends on the situation she's in. How should she proceed in an instance where she knows it's copyrighted versus an instance where it's not? So this is something that that we get a lot at Legal Link. We work with a lot of um, local companies and choreographers who use copyrighted music. So what you want to do is find out who the owner is. Well, first of all, definitely try to get the permission before you use somebody else's copyright work in a performance. And it might be finding out you know, who the publisher is, who the distributor of the sound recording is, and, and getting in contact. A lot of times, you know, it's, it's filling out a form online if it's a major music publisher or if it's a smaller label you know sending an email and getting in touch with a lot of times you can find like an email on the website or a small form to fill out and just saying you know what the use is explaining the situation so what I normally do is I'll find out who owns the work we'll send an email we'll say this is the company that wants to use the work here's some information about the company this is the performance that it's going to be used in here's some information about that performance this is what the audience size is i would definitely recommend right when you know or you think you might be wanting to use a piece of music in a dance production start reaching out So yes, intellectual property is real. It's a thing. It hurts artists a lot, but they don't always protect themselves until it's too late. So I wish you could have asked a question in this app. Well, it's pretty easy. Uh, you can call into this show with questions by calling or texting 978-712-8858. That number again is 978-712-8858. Or tweet or Instagram me at Mobile Incubator. Tune in next episode for an awesome Q&A with Jim Grace, the Executive Director of Arts and Business Council of Greater Boston, and the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts chapter there. He also wrote many how-to books, including The Art of Spooning. Seriously, Jim literally wrote the book on spooning. So questions like, how do you avoid your arm falling asleep under your lover? Well, you'll have to buy the book or just tune in for the next step. You can follow my travels on themobileincubator.com and the Instagrams. Tune in for live stream workshops on Facebook and Periscope and check out more podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Our editor is Axie Berman. Our sound designer is Justin Klump of Podcast Music and Sound in Nashville. And our theme is by the very talented Otis McDonald. And this is Lucas Bivey wishing you lots of love from Miami. So I'm here and somebody's offering to pay me to dance professionally, which is something that I didn't expect to happen. But while I can physically do it, I felt like I should, like I had to.